0: I remember fondly, and maybe all of you do, maybe especially you kids who are here with us this morning, you remember how difficult it was to go to bed on Christmas Eve. It was so hard knowing that, at least in our family with some Swedish heritage, that the big celebrations. Uh, would come that next morning, and there would be the uh, waking up, the opening of presents. I even remember being told several times as a young boy, I had to stay in bed because getting up at 4.30 in the morning was not sufficient on Christmas Day. But I'm like, technically it's morning. Nope, 7 a.m., oh, that was hard. Those long hours of waiting with excitement to find out what new basketball was I to open or whatever it may be. It's the excitement of Christmas Eve and the waiting for Christmas. And usually those things are filled, and not inappropriately so, with the festivities that we practice regularly as families or even as Christians. The opening of gifts, the getting together with loved ones, the good, special meals and foods that we have each year. We long for those things. And we see not only in our own lives as children, even as adults, but certainly as we watch our children and grandchildren, that longing they have, the excitement they feel as we turn the corner past Thanksgiving and we move into the Christmas season. And as we start Advent, and in the last couple years we've returned in this church to practicing Advent, we believe that this, this practice facilitates a Christian longing for the coming of Christ. And that's something that we can easily lose. I mean, it's, to be honest with you, we just don't think from that perspective. It's just so hard for that full story and perspective to be guiding how we live and act. To be honest with you, we're probably just thinking about getting through the next week or getting to the weekend. We've got restaurants with names like that, TGIF or Hump Day Wednesday. Like we, we, We've so truncated kind of what we're longing for and looking forward. Maybe it's a vacation upcoming. Maybe it's the end of a school year. Those are the kind of things that we aim toward, that direct our lives, that we kind of push through to make it to the end. But we've missed the larger story. And the reason, arguably, the church takes five services, four Sundays and a Christmas Eve, to draw out and to really hone in that longing is because it wants us to remember that true story and the ultimate thing we long for. Well, it's interesting as we work through here the end of the pastoral letters. We're in the book of Titus. And we're here at the end of chapter 2. And if, we, if I were to summarize what we've covered so far, and Wendy did it beautifully, really after a brief introduction, Pastor Titus receives some instructions from the Apostle Paul First, he says, I want you to be a clean church. Put things into order. Get things structured well. to Minister the gospel well. Then he says, I want you to be a cultured church. It talks about the older caring and leading and mentoring the younger. And the younger receiving and responding and becoming disciples themselves. But that, that's a culture that's being called forth. But if you read these verses, verses 11 through 15, that Dave just read for us. I wonder if the exhortation there would be to be a focused church. Now, interesting, maybe you wouldn't think these are Christmas verses, but they actually are. Any any Christian who was raised with the liturgical calendar would know that these would be the verses read every Christmas Eve. Again, when you probably think of Christmas, you think of like a manger. You think of Christmas Eve and you think of The birth of Christ, you might not think of his coming, but for Christians in the liturgical churches, that is, for centuries, Christians have seen in these verses the epitome of Advent and Christmas Eve. So it is fitting that on our first Sunday of Advent, we happen to be on a very Advent-focused text about the coming of Christ, both his first coming and his coming again. That is what Christmas is supposed to remind us. That is what Christmas wants us to celebrate. And to be honest with you, not even just looking back to his first coming, but even looking forward to what Paul describes as our blessed hope, that is what this text is instructing us to see and to do. So let me pray, and then we'll look at these words from the Apostle Paul to the church together. Father, help us to have our eyes opened to see the beauty of your word. And help us to see the true biblical story, the story of the world, and to see how our lives fit inside that. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 11 and 12 really make this claim that the first coming of Christ transforms the life of every christian notice the word for begins verse 11 the reason the church looks different and acts different speaking to what was addressed in the verses previous in chapter 2 the reason is because of the transforming work of the coming of christ Meaning if we were to jump back into last week's sermon and say, how does a church get cultured like this? How does a church have the older caring for the younger and the younger latching on to the older and this culture of of love one anotherness? Like, how does that happen? That's the work of Christ. It's the reason the church looks different. It's because it's been transformed by Jesus. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Healing. That word salvation means healing. And fittingly, the word transformation can be used to describe that. This is the Christian message, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ took upon himself the death we deserved. He carried the life that we have lived received it in his death on the cross, transformed it by his resurrection, and now shares with us his life by the power of the Spirit and in relationship through adoption with the Father. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Our lives have been transformed this is why Paul describes it those first few verses in verse 11 as the grace of God notice it's a the grace there's there it's a singular focused all-encompassing grace the salvation of God's people see this explains the importance of Christmas and why we rehearse it year after year And how Advent serves as a rehearsing tool to set the context of Christmas every year. That even as Sharon read those prophetic verses of promise or we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, that you let those words remind you of how you needed Christ's life. The same way that that as I was describing myself as a young boy longing for those Christmas gifts, in a simple, young way, maybe you were remembering that same feeling of longing, something for which you were craving, waiting for, maybe, impatiently. Advent and Christmas reminds us of that longing, that need for the greatest gift. In fact, the word grace is the same root for the word gift. You could even translate verse 11 almost by saying, for the gift of God has appeared. It's Christmas morning. So how does this change us? Because if you read verse 12, you'll see that it's not just a, a, some kind of fact of Christ's coming, but it's a transformation Look at verse 12, training us, this grace, this salvation is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That is the gospel, the good news, the first coming of Christ, the true meaning of Christmas trains us to live in the fullness of this new life. Like, this is the gift. The gift is this new life. And maybe, as Paul says in Colossians, it's something we want to put on. What is this change that happens? It's the removal of the chains of sin and the putting on of the fruit of our salvation. Becoming like Christ. Notice how the text says renouncing ungodliness, removing, taking off like the the mud or the dirt or the grime on your hands that you put under warm water with soap and you rinse it clean. And all through the fingers, you want to get all of that muck off before you touch your nice clean white shirt or the food you're about to eat. You remove ungodliness and worldly passions. Those are things to which you were enchained before Christ came. And then you put on a life, end of verse 12, that is self-controlled, that is upright and godly. By the way, that word train, that first word in verse 12, it's less a phrase that means like teach, as if it's a lecture you're hearing, and it's more the word that just means education really discipleship fits this. It's like a curriculum, an education for a child. It's not one lecture. It's hundreds and hundreds of moments, teachable moments, explanations in the real lived world, hands-on, discipling. That's what the Christian life is. We are learning to remove, in light of the coming of Christ and the freedom that we now have, from sin we are learning how to remove the things of the old self and to put on christ so before we move past this first coming of jesus let me let me try to explain the important truths that these verses are making first one would just simply be this it is important for christians to understand that behavior follows belief We cannot put that in the wrong order. You reverse that order, and what you're preaching is not Christ, it's moralisms. We have to put that in the right order. The reason that we can have this life and remove ungodliness and worldly passions is because Christ himself has taken from us the life that we have lived and given us a share in his life. So any kind of exhortation to a culture or to a civilization, to a nation, or to a world, about some kind of values that aren't put in the proper order of the new birth of Christ are misguided from the beginning. Behavior follows belief. Salvation. It requires a birth from above. It requires a life of Christ and His coming. Maybe... We'll sing again, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And you can notice that that is the longing of those verses. It's longing about the coming of Christ. The desire of all the nations to be removed from their brokenness. And only when He comes, knowing He'll come one day, will there be the kind of traits that He will bring with Him. Because behavior follows belief. Here's the second thing. When the church pursues proper behavior, it is receiving the gospel and putting it to work. Right? As much as we want to fight against some kind of moralistic practices where we just make it about behaviors and, and, and rules, that isn't to say that there aren't morals or expectations that Christians proclaim. When the church pursues what verse 12 is saying, it is receiving the gospel. It is saying, put on Christ. Enjoy the benefits of new life by removing ungodliness and worldly passions and putting on self-control, uprightness, and godliness. That is part of the blessing of the gospel. I remember I spoke with a man Not too many years ago That was just adamant That the church should never make moral demands Even on a Christian That to do so was to deny the gospel It was to lessen Jesus To make any moral demands at all This position historically has been called antinomianism No law is what that word means There can be no commands from God Because the the lordship of Jesus Is eclipsed by Jesus the Savior some, some maybe even call it hyper grace. Like grace is such a big category that there's no place for moral commands. I remember asking him, Do you actually ever command your children or expect your children to clean their rooms? And he actually would answer me and say, No. And all he could do was go to them and urge them, um, It is in your best interest, 13 year old, that you make your bed and clean your room. But he felt he could not make any command because it would be denying the grace of his acceptance. And how to misunderstand the goodness of our king. Imagine a parent saying to a kid, I cannot command you to stay out of that road. But it is in your life's best interest to avoid oncoming cars. But to never feel like you could say it with any kind of force or strength, as if the preventing of death was the denying of grace. When the church pursues proper behavior in the right order, new birth shows itself by this putting on of the life of Christ. Our pursuit of godliness is itself receiving the gospel. Our pursuit of godliness is putting the gospel to work. Is to know that our life is now grounded in Christ. The, the last thing I think verses 11 and 12 teaches is this, that a pursuit of a godly life is actually God's gift to a Christian. It is the experience of God's grace and peace It's to know and taste and feel the goodness that we could never experience on our own. Picture this with me mentally. Picture a Christian of deep faith. They are rooted in Christ. They are are those who we would say to live is Christ. They know Christ. When crisis comes... They have, because they have renounced the things of this world and they have grasped Christ all the more, they have pursued the words in verse 12 self control, uprightness, godliness. When crisis comes, there is such a patience in them. There is such a confidence confidence, the word that its root means live by faith. There is a hope. And even a love that is palpable. Because what they have done is they have renounced worldly passions that are fleeting and lack of foundation. And they have decided to grasp as part of the benefits package of the gospel a life of Christ that becomes their own so that they become less and He becomes more and he owns more of their soul and body so that when crises come, they are not fazed because they know to whom they belong and who holds the world. We, we do this in other things. Physical labor has its benefits, even if it's difficult. A hard day's labor is difficult, but it's nice to pay the bills. Exercise Causes heat and sweat and ache, but you can climb the stairs without huffing and puffing or move without hurting your back. So, too, spiritual labor, though requires some effort, has great benefits to the Christian because Christ transforms our lives. But it's not just the first coming that this passage talks about. That's what makes Christmas and Advent unique. I think it's tempting for us just to look back to a manger and not forward to the coming Messiah. It is actually both. Because if verse 11 says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, in the, notice how verse 12 ends, in the present age, verse 13 switches to the age to come. Notice there's It has appeared, salvation has come in the present age, yet we're still, verse 13, waiting. We're still waiting. In one sense, brothers and sisters, it's going to be a perennial Christmas Eve every single day, waiting for the fullness of the final Christmas when Jesus comes again. Paul says these words, waiting for our blessed hope. See, the first coming was just the beginning. The ultimate goal is the full transformation of the world. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works, Declare these things, Paul says to Titus, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you, i.e. this is very important. So what are we still waiting for? Paul describes it as our blessed hope. Hear this, the word waiting is not referring to that void of time sitting in a doctor's office waiting room. It's not a twiddling your thumbs kind of waiting. It's a posture of complete confidence in the promises of God. Here's a truth that might be good to know in the Bible, hope is not a wish, it's an assurance. So, in the Bible, the word hope, the name of this church, hope is not a wish. I hope the Bears make the playoffs. That's a wish. Hope is not a wish, it is an assurance. It is an absolute guarantee, even if yet to be received, because the guarantee has been promised by God, who does not lie. A blessed hope is confident assurance. Our blessed hope is the second coming of Christ. And Paul describes it with this phrase that is difficult to even grasp. He says that the blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What does that powerful statement mean? That the coming of Christ will bring the fullness of God's power, the fullness of God's presence, and the completion of God's purposes for which he made the world and gave himself up for it. Like, to be honest with you, that's even hard to grasp. Like, that's way better than that basketball I opened up the next day when I was so excited on Christmas Eve. I can't even put my head around what that means. I think that's why the Bible uses this word glory, which really just is in comparison to God. Glory just means weight, force magnitude. And and the comparison is God. So God will reveal himself for the fullness that he is, which is well beyond our pay grade. And all we can know is the best possible thing because it's what what God has intended. Where he will reveal his power, his presence, and his completed purposes. So what does our waiting look like? Verse 14 says, it looks like those who rejoice in the promise and prepare for the present. Jesus has freed us from the enslavement to brokenness, claimed us as his own, and filled us with the passions and desires that match the gift. I think that's what verse 14 is saying. Like Jesus has redeemed us from all the lawlessness. He's purified us. He's set us apart. He's made us his own people. He's filled us with the, with the passion and the worship of these promises. And we begin to live out in the present the fullness that we've been given as a down payment for the future. And that's what he means where these people, for his own possession, are zealous for good works. They are getting ready. I remember Laura and I were close to getting married, and I was in seminary in Texas, and she was in Minnesota, which is basically Canada, and I was basically in Mexico. So we were a long ways away. And I just remember she was coming on the airplane and just going to visit for a few days, and I was so excited and I mean, I probably changed my shirt three times. I haven't done that once since we got married. Uh, I mean, I, I went and got flour. Do I get chocolate flowers? She probably wouldn't want the chocolate. Maybe she wouldn't want the chocolate. I'm not going to ask her if she wants chocolate. I mean, do I do those things? I show up at the airport like five hours early, which was ridiculous. I brought books. I just kept checking flights. This is before apps would tell you that, so I'm checking the screen waiting to see. I was excited. I planned a couple days. The the, the place that she was going to stay in, which was a building or two away from the dorm I was in, all of this was worked out. I mean, I had prepared. I was it wasn't like, oh, here we go. I got to figure out where she's going to stay. I was excited for her to come. I couldn't wait to see her. I was Uh, more than willing to have the expense and the work and the planning i was it didn't feel like work it didn't feel like labor it was a joy i was anticipating her arrival and the plane landed and i'm looking over the heads of all these people waiting to see the one who would come i was waiting for her that's that image in verse 14 It's, you're not just waiting for a weekend. Like, no, notice how the smaller story can truncate it. You're not just waiting, well, I just got to get through school, or I just got to get to the summer, or I just got to get to vacation. Notice how we can literally be living truncated stories, that our blessed hope is kind of not really hope, and it's not really blessed at all. So how do we apply this truth to our lives? Here's a few things. First, we need to work hard to know and live the true story of the world. Like, we've got to make the new creation and the second coming the actual goal of our lives. And I'm just not sure we talk about that enough as as Christians. It's just not on the radar. Like, we kind of know it as a doctrinal statement. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I know how it's going to end, and then it'll end. But it's not like something I'm aiming for. It's not something directing my life. It's not something that I'm making life and even career and family decisions because the things of this world are literally lessened by the world to come. Instead, what I'm tempted to do, like all those who don't have the new birth I've had, is to live their story, put my hope into their things. We are easily captivated by partial stories. We just are. We're captivated by partial stories related to our careers. Maybe the ret- our retirement gets the gets the gets the force of a blessed hope. We're captivated by partial stories of our own pleasure and enjoyment, a vacation, goals of this or that that are literally of the present age, but don't include the age to come. Maybe even our family. Sitting next to Somebody recently at a, one of my kids' sporting events, and one of the parents said, my kids are my life. And I'm realizing, man, that is the blessed hope of a secular world. And while I would hope every Christian loves their kids, and it's a big part of their life, can a Christian say that? Christ is my life. To live is my kids. Is that what you would say? Is that what Paul said? To live is my kids. Well, then you couldn't say to die is gain. And To die is loss. Is that the secular blessed hope? If you have to say to live is Christ, then even your own babies are not the end. But we have been way too satisfied with partial stories. Second, since we're since competing stories are everywhere, the church needs to make sure that to prioritize what is true. Notice verse 15. I think we could blow right past it. Like we think the passage is done, but then Paul gives this strong exhortation, declare these things. It's like he's grabbing Titus by the collar pulling them close to say, I want you to preach this stuff. And listen, to some people, you need to exhort them. Like, they're discouraged by the present age, you need to point them to the new creation. Others, they literally have shrines in their hearts to partial stories, and you need to rebuke them. Because you need to make sure that they know what their blessed hope is. Don't let anyone disregard you. They're not listening. Hit them with a study Bible. Exhort and rebuke. Last, I, I think this fits not only Advent, but even just our regular weekly worship, which is why God commands it. Why this, more than any other thing we do in the church, this gathering on this particular morning is the most important thing. Christians need to prioritize weekly corporate worship to remember and rehearse the true story. Like we gather every week on the first day of the week the first day symbolizing the first, the beginning of the new creation. The old week has passed because Christ has resurrected and fulfilled God's week of creation. And we're waiting for the new creation. So we gather, first thing, and you guys are crazy enough to even come to the 8 a.m. service. So you get up, barely got the coffee working, and the first of the very first thing you do at the beginning of the new week is you come in here week after week, and you say, Christ is my life. And I want to align my life. I want to align, like GPS, I want to align my life and my directions of my life to Jesus Christ. And you do this week after week after week, because to live, to hope, to work is Christ. And we long for it. Now that's Christmas. That's Advent. It's more than just every Sunday. Of course it is that. But that's why these church holy days, holidays, not just in the secular world about reindeer and St. Nick, but about Jesus and the new creation that we pause... Every year, around this time, and we reorient ourselves and we look back to the grace of God, we look at that, we just weep and celebrate how Christ has transformed our lives. That makes sense of all the work that we're doing, the labor, and it also makes sense of the passions and the excitement and the zeal that we have for the things of God, because God has so worked in us that we feel the benefits of it. And then we, in the midst of all our strife, we've got people in this room dealing with medical issues. We've got people in this room dealing with family issues, marriages, holding on by a thread, bodies that are slowly failing. We've got got depression and anxiety. We've got brokenness in relationships and well beyond our own household. We've got issues in a government and in a world. We've got health and financial issues. We, we could list all the problems, and in the midst of that, then we, after looking back to the transforming work of Christ in our life, we look forward and we see, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And we sing it loud, and we're holding on. And in this is the Spirit of God, and this people that God has chosen for His own possession. He has bestowed us with His gift, and He says, look there and hold fast. And we do, that, we, we do that minimally every week just in small ways as we gather. But then every time we get to this year with these candles and with these readings we look to Emmanuel and we say, come. Come Emmanuel. Come Emmanuel. And we have hope. Remember, not a wish but an assurance. For the second coming of Christ directs the life of the Christian. And I just didn't want us to miss that on the first day of Advent. And by the grace and providence of God, our text actually spoke exactly about those things. So just as we rejoice in the first coming of Christ, so we confidently and fittingly live in light of the second coming. And if you have made a partial story The main theme of your life, even a truncated version of Christmas that misses the reason for this season, then maybe this text will minister to you, as it has for to Christians for generations, as it has been read on Christmas Eve, which means millions of your brothers and sisters have heard this text to give them a plumb line in the midst of crises. So to hear this text this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which ministers to us and guides us. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Father, the way that your word, even just fitting fitting our sermon series in Advent, so beautifully aligns. Father, we thank you this morning for the transforming work of Christ's first coming, and we pray that you would help us, maybe even more during this Advent season, long and and latch on to the second coming of Christ, that that would be the true, full story that we live out. Father, I pray that especially for us as we deal with individually and even collectively so many different crises and issues. Help us to have biblical hope, not wishful thinking, but confident assurance that the grace of God that first appeared is clearly and certainly our blessed hope. Father, receive this closing song as zealous singing that springs from the transforming work and promise of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray in His name. Amen.